it makes sense that that people use vocal, organic, conventional as shorthand for what their top priority is. And you know, you're right that there's nothing wrong with that. I am glad to see people arguing about it because at least these are people who care about the food supply, and I think that that's a really important sort of first step. Most people don't,、um, but it gets to the point where、uh, where the, the the discourse and the quality of the discourse interferes with rather than promotes constructive change. Tamar Haspel has a great column in the Washington Post called "Unearthed." And for this episode, she joined me to talk about her concern that our embrace of this or that food philosophy is preventing us from making progress towards a better food system. That's coming up, so stick around. This is the Ruminant Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant is dedicated to sharing good ideas for farming and gardening. There's tons of interesting stuff at theruminant.ca. I hope you'll check it out. All right, let's get going. Hey, everybody! Can you believe it? It's a new episode with new content. I followed through on a commitment. Huzzah! Anyway, here we are.、Uh, I've got a great episode for you today. I had just such a good conversation with Tamar Haspel,、uh, this writer at the Washington Post. The column's called Unearthed. She does about an article a month, and there's some great reading in there. So I really hope you'll、uh, you'll go and and find her writing. It's really good. So one thing I didn't follow through on is that last week I told you I might have a smaller segment in this episode about rotary plows because、uh, a listener that I'll be collaborating with a bit, at least for the next few episodes, Scott Humphreys,、uh, got on the phone with me because he wanted to talk about rotary plows. He has one, I have one, and we thought it might be useful for other owners of these machines to to hear us chat a little bit. That conversation has happened, but we're going to take our time in editing it, and it'll be coming in a future episode. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for rotary plow users,、uh, why don't you send them over? Editor at theruminant.ca.、Uh, any 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 little anecdotes about your experiences, or or like I say, suggestions for people would be would be really great. Another thing I'm going to be working on, and this is a suggestion that came from Scott, is an episode all about off-season work. I think that's a really good idea because I think many farmers face the challenge of how to string together income through the winter if that income's not coming from farming. And so, what I'd like to do is talk to a number of farmers about what they do in the winter. I'm going to talk about what I do. Scott's going to talk about what he does, and I hope I can convince some of you to participate as well. So, if you want to record something with me about your off-season efforts, well, give me a text message two five zero seven six seven six six three six, or email me editor at theruminant.ca. I would love to hear from you. So that's coming up for a re,、uh, future episode.、Uh, another upcoming episode, I have booked Ian Nauer. He is a farmer and food. Network guy, he's been on TV a little bit、uh, because he's a chef as well, and he has this fantastic、uh, cookbook that I have here on the farm and love. And probably next week we're going to have that episode up, and in which Ian and I will be talking about farming and cooking and everything in between. So you can look forward to that and to this future segment on rotary plows. Thanks, folks. That's about it for now. Here's my conversation with Tamar Haspel, and I will probably talk to you a little bit at the end. Tamar Haspel, thanks a lot for coming on the Ruminant podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to talk to you. 
Tamar, I've invited you on because I recently discovered your column in the Washington Post. I think it's a fantastic column, and I wanted to specifically ask you about uh, an article or a column that you wrote on July 26 called Why Everyone Who Is Sure About a Food Philosophy Is Wrong. Ah, yes. Well, thank you for the kind words, and uh, I'm glad you're interested in that column. There, there was a little pushback about that because, of course, there are lots of people who believe that their food philosophy is right. And, you know, the basic reason that I wrote it is because I think that food and philosophy are bad bedfellows because feeding people now 7 billion, presumably 9 billion in the not-too-distant future, is an endless series of compromises. There's just this tug-of-war between people and planet, and feeding people inevitably does damage to the planet. Um, and there's no principle that's going to guide you through. Uh, you know, the, the, the basic two sides of the argument are, on one side we have the efficiency of production that we have here in the United States in our conventional system. And at the other end is the organic attention to soil health um, and minimizing damage to the planet. And so those two things are always sort of at odds with each other. But the reality is neither one of them is a universal guiding principle. You never sacrifice the planet to a little bit more efficiency. And likewise, sometimes it makes sense to sacrifice some damage to the planet in order for large increases in, in efficiency. And so, you know, it's all case by case. It's all one at a time. There are things to like and things to not like about every philosophy under the sun. Right. And so before we go much further, tomorrow, I just want to, in, in your very uh, great summary that you just provided, um, you, you, you kind of, you only mentioned conventional and organic in your article, you break it down a little further. And I just want to give listeners a sense of what you're, what, that you, that you do get more specific about food philosophies. So, um, do you, do. Do, 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 can you further break it down a little more in terms of, I mean, I, I'm using my own words, but in terms of the camps that, that you see, um, that you tend to see when we talk about, um, you know, the ideal way to produce food. And there, there are a number of them, as you point out, um, and uh, the ones that I paid most attention to, I looked at conventional, I looked at organic, I also looked at local because there are a lot of people who believe that producing more food within you know, 50 or 100 miles of the people who are eating it is one effective way to, to, to feed people responsibly. And then there's anti-GMO, which seems to be getting a great deal of, of steam right now. Yeah, I think local is really a good example of how uh, most food philosophies have something good and something not so good. And, you know, the idea that we can get food in our immediate community has a lot going for it. It means that, you know, there's a place I can bring my kids to meet a farmer or a pig um, or, you know, to pick raspberries or to buy some delicate produce that doesn't travel well, like the beautiful summer tomatoes. Um, it's also, I think, it helps foster a sense of community in a lot of places. People like to go to the farmer's market. People like to meet the people who are growing their food. People like to interact with the other people who are buying at the farmer's market. And I would never uh, sell any of those things short. But the idea that we should grow a, a, a lot of diverse kinds of food on small farms, and most of these farms are relatively small, in the immediate area, means a couple of things. It means we sacrifice the efficiency that comes from growing just a few crops, 
Um, and it also means that we're growing a lot of crops in places that aren't so hospitable for growing crops. You know, one of the reasons we grow the vast majority of our vegetables in California is because California is good for growing vegetables. I live on Cape Cod where the soil is sandy. We don't grow vegetables so well here. And so the resources that are invested in growing them down the street from me are going to be much, much greater than the resources invested in growing them in California, even including having them shipped across the country. And, and, and so, and, and yeah, Tamar, you, you provide a pretty uh, powerful example of that. I mean, you, you reference, um, you know, the, the, the output for cucumbers in Maryland uh, is about 7,800 pounds per acre mm-hmm, of cucumbers mm-hmm. versus Florida, which is, <laughs> uh, you know, basically three times that, uh, 26,000 pounds per acre. And, and so right, that even when you, even when you, you factor in the, 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 uh, the environmental damage caused by the extra food miles, uh, we're still better off in in that example, getting those cucumbers from from uh, Florida. And I think yield is something that's missing from a lot of the discussion of organic and local, um, because the, the, we think of of large scale conventional agriculture as being a resource hog, and as being bad for the environment. But if you're growing cucumbers where you need four times the land to produce the same number of cucumbers that somebody in Florida can do, think about the fossil fuels that go into that. Think about the inputs for the soil, even if it's an organic system. Think about the labor that goes into that um, and how that labor might be better utilized in our food system. And so, you know, we get a lot of warm fuzzies out of discussions of local in organic food and with some justification there are a lot of local and organic farmers who are doing wonderful work um but but if we try and widen the lens on that and think about what our food supply would look like if that were the way we fed people we butt up against some very very significant shortcomings so i mean you know what you've you've what you've highlighted in the article is that all of these different approaches have have pros and cons um, mm-hmm. but that we tend to, unfortunately, you know, really embrace this system over that system and, and become somewhat dogmatic about, about the system that we advocate for what we haven't talked about yet. And what you talk about in your article is what's wrong with that. Why, why is that such a, such a problem? Well, I think it's a problem because it means we're unlikely to make any meaningful change in the way that we farm. And, uh, and I think that, that it's important that we take a constructive look at the way we grow food in this country and around the world and think about how to do it better. But, you know, the thing about agriculture is that it's mind-numbingly dull to most people. And when you start talking about these things, you know, what are the pros and cons of organic? What are the pros and cons of local? What are the pros and cons of conventional? The devil is always in the details. And once you start talking about, you know, the kinds of of inputs that are required and the application rates per acre and the yield per acre and the spoilage, um, people's eyes glaze over. And so it makes sense that that people use local, organic, conventional as shorthand for what their top priority is. 
And, you know, you're right that there's nothing wrong with that. I am glad to see people arguing about it because at least these are people who care about the food supply. And I think that that's a really important first step. Most people don't. Um, but it gets to the point where, uh, where the, the, the discourse and the quality of the discourse interferes with rather than promotes constructive change. And I think, you know, the, the argument about GMOs is exhibit A for this. That, that there is such a vitriolic opposition to genetically modified organisms. And it, I think it, in a lot of ways, it's a proxy for deep and reasonable concern about an industrialized and corporatized food supply. But it's really hard to find something specific to object to in that food supply. And so GMOs seem to offer a foothold into this big, slippery issue of, of you know, large companies' involvement in this, you know, commodity food supply. And so people really hang on to that. And, and it's, it's a way of expressing a, a dislike and a distrust for the way we grow now, but, um, but it's, it's not constructive because GMOs are not the problem, and it's disheartening to see so much blood and treasure wasted on this argument when there's so many more important issues out there in the world. So, so essentially you're, you're suggesting, if I understand you right, that when we become um, dogmatic about, about the way we think sh- things sh- we should be done, then we just we can't... Well, I guess for one thing, dogma is kind of the enemy of progress because it, it, it means that we fail to see the shortcomings in our in our own advocated approach. Uh, and it also just... And of course, sorry, go ahead. Dogmatic is a pejorative word. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're both using it here. And, and so it, to say what's wrong with dogma, um, you're already sort of admitting that, that there's something wrong with it because you're calling it dogma. Um, but if you call it instead... Uh, you know, principle, um, then it doesn't sound bad. What's wrong with principles about growing food? And and you could ask the question that way. And and again, I it it it, it I go back to the issue that I think that the principles that are raised in all of these fights about how we need to feed people responsibly are very important, but they just don't translate well. Um, on the ground when you're making decisions about how I'm going to grow, you know, strawberries on this patch of land. Well, I, I agree. It's a pejorative term. I, I think it might be important to, at least in some contexts, use that term though, when, when such, again, I'll use the term dogma is preventing, um, more constructive conversations, I guess. I just, well, I certainly used the term, so uh, I'm not backing away from it. <laughs> I, you know, your, your, your article really focuses on the word food philosophy. Like everyone, you know, people tend to embrace a certain philosophy and never the tween shall meet. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I agree with that characterization, although I think what that can lead to is another problem of, um, you know, uh, self-righteousness or sanctimoniousness. And I think, I think that is a product of, 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 of buying too much into one philosophy. And that's what prevents constructive conversation uh, between advocates of different camps, I suppose. And that's my big concern. And I do feel like I see that. I see that uh, it's not like everyone's dogmatic, but we do have members 
uh, of various movements related to agriculture who, who are dogmatic, who are very passionate and idealistic and, and their, their participation is important. But sometimes that, that, that fervent belief in this system over that system leads to, to, I guess, I would argue a sanctimoniousness. And that's what leads to tension among the groups when they try and talk about the best way to approach modern agriculture. Certainly sanctimony is the enemy of discourse. But on the other hand, we all are very attached to the idea that the conclusions that we come to about these things are the right ones. And if you're a passionate environmentalist and you are committed to the idea that organic agriculture is the only responsible way to feed the world, I understand going out in in the world and really almost not being able to wrap your mind around people who disagree with you because it seems like such a clear priority to you. And so, you know, the way I've tried to approach it um, is by understanding what the, the assets of each of these food philosophies is. Because I think if you go into any conversation acknowledging, you know, what's good about somebody else's ideas, you know, it, it's going to be a better foundation for a constructive discussion than if you lead with what's wrong. Um, and so, but you're right. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. It almost, and uh, other people, I have not, but other people have compared these kinds of arguments to, you know, religions. Um, that it, it seems to be very much about heartfelt beliefs and, and you know, talking about science and, and battling studies back and forth doesn't really seem to change anything. So, Tamara, I wouldn't mind actually going over a couple more examples of, of, of what we're talking about here. Uh, so, so I thought maybe I could just get you to elaborate on um, the, the main camps or philosophies that you started with at the top of our conversation, you know, organic versus conventional. So I thought I could just start, I could just ask you, okay, so, so if I'm someone who fervently, uh, passionately, let's say argues that, uh, organic agriculture is the future of agriculture, that everyone should be doing it. And then ideally everyone should be certified organic. What's wrong with that? Well, here's the thing. Um, there are a number of things wrong with that, but the idea that we should focus on soil health is not one of them. And one of the things that I want, that I pointed out in the piece was that everybody thinks that soil health is important. And the, the basic organic philosophy before it became, you know, a system of certification was paying attention to soil health. And I don't know anyone who argues with that, but once you start layering on these requirements and, and codifications, you get into trouble. And so, for example, um, the, the, the organic standard, the United States organic standard, draws a line between natural and synthetic. Um, and that's basically the litmus test for what's appropriate to add to organic agriculture. And there are exceptions. There's some synthetic compounds that are permitted. But for the most part, if it's natural, it's okay. And if it's, in, if it's synthetic, it's not. But I've talked to a lot of toxicologists about this. And, and the idea that if it's natural, it's less toxic is simply false. And so to evaluate the inputs that you're allowed to use based on their naturalness 
rather than based on their toxicity makes no sense from you know an environmental standpoint and so sometimes organic farmers are left using for example fungicides that are copper based that are very toxic um, when a synthetic might be able to do the job with less impact to the environment um, and you know there's some other things in the organic standard that are are troubling and one of them that troubles me is the idea that if you give an animal antibiotics you have to take it out of the uh, organic system for all time and I this this bothers me a great deal because what you're doing when you do that is giving a farmer a, fin a financial a strong financial incentive to not treat an animal with antibiotics to hope that that animal will, will recover without uh, those drugs and you know there's there's no statistics on on whether or how much animal suffering there has been as a result of that but I think that it's safe to assume that there has been some. And also the idea that once an animal has had antibiotics, it's not suitable for organic uh, uh, food production anymore is ridiculous because after a waiting period, there's going to be no trace of that, an that antibiotic in uh, the animal's products, whether it's milk, meat, or eggs. And in conventional systems, there's a waiting period after you administer antibiotics uh, before you can harvest any kind of meat, milk, or eggs from those animals. And, and so this reinforces the idea that any antibiotic use in livestock is a bad idea when, it, when it, I think it's clear that judicious use of antibiotics is important for animal welfare and also for food safety in some circumstances. So those are just a couple of examples of where the organic standard um, uh, does not seem to be an optimal, uh, doesn't translate to an optimal uh, agricultural system. And doesn't, I guess, with both examples, kind of reflect the complexities involved in, in some of these approaches, in, in some farming practices? It, it does. And all of this is complex. And, and, of course, a lot of these particular problems with organic are rooted in the problem not so much with organic agriculture, but with a system that certifies organic agriculture. Because as soon as you get into the business of certification, you have to say, yes, these things are okay and these things are not okay. And as soon as you do that, you take away a lot of flexibility that farmers have to make decisions on case-by-case -case basis. And I talk to a lot of organic farmers, and you know they make the decision to be organic for a number of reasons. One of them is that they are are I uh, think that that's a better way to farm, but another is that they get a premium for those for those products. And every farmer I talk to butts up against the limitations of the organic standard and wishes that there were some things that they could do um, that they're not allowed to do, and they end up doing things that have no uh, environmental significance but end up costing them and ultimately their customers more for no good reason. Right. Okay, so that was great. Can we switch over now to conventional ag as it has been sort of defined let's and influenced by the Green Revolution? So, so let's and let's talk about that system and, and some of the, the inherent flaws of that system. So the Green Revolution was the period, I guess, defined from the 40s to the 60s, um, where uh, the use of mostly chemical inputs, fertilizers specifically, um, in, but also the development of new varieties of seed, increased yields dramatically. 
And it's sort of the basis of, uh, of the way we grow most crops in this country. Um, half of the land that we have in production is corn and soy. And often it's just those two crops in rotation and sometimes with wheat thrown into the mix. And, and you know, this is, this is directly the kind of agriculture that came out of the Green Revolution. And on the plus side, there are the, the yields are astonishing. Corn uh, yields 15 million calories per acre. Now, to put that in perspective, each of us humans needs about a million calories a year. So the idea that you could feed 15 people, just their energy requirements, obviously not their nutritional or protein requirements, but that you can satisfy the, the, the caloric needs of 15 people with one acre of land is astonishing. The downside, of course, is that during the Green Revolution, um, there wasn't a lot of attention paid either to soil health or to pollution from runoff from those chemicals. Um, and obviously growing just a few uh, crops is the enemy of biodiversity. And so, you know, we read about the shutdown of the Ohio water system because of algae blooms. And there's pretty widespread agreement that most of that is fueled by agricultural runoff. And I've talked to a lot of conventional farmers who uh, don't like that system any more than you and I do. And in fact, there are, there are improvements going on in agriculture to target specifically almost on a you know, square meter by square meter basis what exactly that piece of ground needs to grow the crop that's going to be planted on it and fertilize only that amount. Um, and so I think that conventional agriculture is improving on uh, on those shortcomings, but they, there's no question that they still exist. Okay, thank you. So, um, Tamar, I'm, I'm with you on, just going back to your, your main idea here, I'm with you on the need to, to root out and eliminate, and I'm going to use this word again, dogmatic thinking. Um, mm -hmm. I think we all, well, many of us, including myself, could be humbler about about what we believe about about how the best way to, to approach agriculture and i've seen this problem of dogma um in both organic and conventional uh mm -hmm. sides of the debate um oh, have I. so but here's my con here's my concern and i know you'll tell me if you uh disagree or if you think i'm reaching here um and perhaps in my concern i'm going to reveal my own entrenched biases but um i worry well i'm gonna i'm going to reference your, your article in, again and there's a description of conventional ag in a paragraph in your article that goes like this you describe conventional ag as a system characterized by soil degradation pollution and heavy dependence on chemicals um, and you've, you've kind of just reviewed that in the exam, example you just provided but um, there's <laughs> that's a pretty terrible description a terrible situation right and I worry about like a type of agricultural relativism i guess like well everything has its pros and cons and therefore we should try and refrain refrain from being too judgmental about other the way other people are farming or that sort of thing so i guess i'm just pushing back a little and saying well isn't some of this fervent criticism important and can we 
I know I'm I'm simplifying a bit in in a way that's not fair to you, but but you know, should we be um, saying, well, you know, no one's got it completely right, and therefore, you know, every, everything is more equal than we like to believe, or or whatever. I see where you're going with this. And for starters, you can challenge me on absolutely anything. I'm a big girl, and I actually enjoy talking to people who disagree with me about things. But I think I would I would look at this a completely different way because you're very focused on this idea of dogma, and you know you talk about use words like um, being non-judgmental, um, and I don't usually I, that's not where I go with this because. I prefer to stay focused on the the agricultural issues and not the personal issues. Um, if I think you're wrong, I'm not going to take issue necessarily with with your lack of humility. I'm going to take issue with the idea that you're espousing. And um, there are very legitimate criticisms. And and when when I bring all of these up. It's almost as though I'm asking to debate about exactly what you're talking about. The reason we're not having constructive conversations about this is because we're having not so constructive conversations about, you know, the, the, this organic versus conventional battlefield. Um, And, and yeah, to characterize an agricultural system, as being, um, you know, the, the, uh, to say that an agricultural system is characterized by, by pollution and heavy dependence on chemicals, yeah, that's a pretty heavy indictment. Um, and other people make that same indictment. What I'm asking for, though, is to make that indictment at the same time you acknowledge the huge increases of yield that have fed people. And, and when we talk about decreasing the pollution and decreasing the dependence on chemicals, we have to do it in the context of maintaining the kinds of yields that we've grown to expect from our crops. That's, I don't think that answers your question. No, I mean, I, th- I think it does. Ask I just, another way. Well, I just, um, I'm, I'm going to, I will try and ask you another way. I'll go back to this, this phrase I, I, I use, agricultural relativism. I just... When, when I look at that description yeah, in your no, article, I, I as don't an organic... In agricultural relativism. I don't believe in agricultural relativism. Yeah. I don't believe that everybody's kind of right. I believe that there are ways to do things better and ways to do things worse. And the problem isn't that everybody's right and everybody's wrong um, in the sense of, you, you know, the facts on the ground. It's when you aggregate those facts into a philosophy that you tend to go wrong. And so, no, I'm not, I'm not looking for a kinder, gentler, can't we all get along, although I would like us to all be able to get along. It, I, I, I'm not looking for, I, I don't, gosh, I don't even know how to say this to get my point across, um, because I know exactly what you're saying, and I'm in favor of judgmentalism. Because I think if something is right for me and for you, it's right for everybody. I am not a relativist. But I think that if you're not a relativist, you have to be really, really sure about thinking about what's right before you go out in the world with that opinion. Okay, so I think then this is a good segue into what is your, in your article, how do you advocate, like, what's a better way to, to come at these, these challenges? Okay, it's, it's certainly not um, in being entrenched in, a, in one food philosophy. So what is, what is the better approach? Unfortunately, it's all case by case. And 
you know, what's a better way? Well, it depends what way you're talking about. And, you know, uh, there are a few things. I'd like to see the organic standard ditch the distinction between uh, synthetic and natural. Um, Actually, what I'd like to see is is a best practices standard um, that's not the organic standard uh, that defines some practices that give farmers choices but can assure consumers that the products that they're buying have been grown in a responsible way. But then you get into all kinds of trouble when you try and define what those best practices <laughs> yeah, are. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it's, it's a very, very difficult problem to solve um, because, you know, growing – Cucumbers in Florida is a whole lot different from growing corn in Nebraska. Um, and, and I think that, that the place to start is probably crop by crop. Um, and, you know, the, the USDA has incredible resources as far as defining um, how crops are grown in different places in the country uh, and what the advantages and disadvantages are. They have, they have all kinds of data on these things. And I guess if I were to be in charge, um, that's where I would start. I would sit down with the people at the USDA who understand these things best um, and the farmers who are actually growing the food and try and work out a, you know, a, a best practices standard. But it would be necessarily general. Um, but I think that that's, that's better than nothing. And I, I thought it was interesting, Tamara, that you, you near the end of the article, you talk about how the closer you get to agriculture, you, you've, in your experience, you found the more open-minded people are, that you you think farmers yeah, are some yeah, of the most open-minded true. people. <laughs> and, you know, when I talk to farmers, they do something one way and are often very, short, very uh, forthcoming about what the disadvantages of the way that they have chosen are and how their neighbor down the street does it a little differently and how they used to do it differently and they're thinking about doing it differently again and that that i think farmers understand that every system has trade-offs and they're prepared to talk about what those trade-offs are and they necessarily understand those trade-offs because you know they're trying to make a living from this farm and they perfectly well know what the repercussions are for, for every decision that they make. And, um, and the farther away you get from the farm gate, you know, the more sort of philosophically committed to a school of thought I've found that people are. And actually in academia also, I think that, that uh, people who study these things and, and teach in some of our land-grant universities are also much less dogmatic than than the public at large and so and again this is a function of of being interested in the details that bore most people and and so here we have this incredibly complex problem and you know most people have jobs they they have nothing to do with agriculture they're just trying to make good decisions about the food that they put on the table i mean I have the luxury of spending basically 24-7 on these things and and really, you know, trying to understand them. And I can tell you it's made me quite a hit at parties. 
And But most people, they just want some basic guidelines. And unfortunately, basic guidelines don't really work. Well, Tamar Haswell, I'm really glad you came on The Ruminant to talk about this uh, really thought-provoking article, Why Everyone Who Is Sure About a Food Philosophy Is Wrong. And I hope my listeners will check out your monthly column in the Washington Post. It's called Unearthed, and there's some really great articles in there. I think you've been doing it about a year and a half now. Is that about right? Uh, yeah, going on two years. I think it'll be two years in October. Oh, right on. Well, I'm really glad that you're doing it. And uh, what, are, what are you working on right now? Uh, right now, I'm working on glyphosate. <laughs> oh. How toxic is it really? I, I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. Uh, Tamar Haswell, thanks. So, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me, Jordan. I appreciate it. Wasn't that great? Man, people like Tamar make this job so easy because... They're so thoughtful and articulate. I really hope you'll go and check out her column, Unearthed. Go and Google it. It's in the Washington Post, and uh, I've read a number of her other articles there. They're all pretty good. And one more time, I'll repeat, I am working with Scott Humphreys on a future episode about off-season work, and I would really like to hear your experiences with off-season work when the farm shut down. So if you want to get in on that and record a little bit of audio, please contact me. You can text me, 250-767-6636, or you can email me, editor at theruminant.ca. And in the meantime, please head over to the Ruminant website, theruminant.ca, and check out everything that's on there. There's, there's all kinds of stuff, some photo-based blog posts, some of my essays, and of course, lots of past podcast episodes. So enjoy that stuff, folks, and if everything goes well, I will have a brand new episode for you next week. Take care. trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands i've been doing a lot of thinking some real soul searching and here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and braces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees and live life like it was meant to be.